Tumani, we are going to start this episode with a remembrance of Mike Dixon, our longtime colleague who worked for the Daily Mail as our tennis correspondent who passed away suddenly during the first week of the main draw of this 2024 Australian Open. I'll defer to you. I guess you were obviously part of the British crew, um, which is a crew that rolls together in a lot of situations, and Mike was a core member of that. He's someone who was on tour uh, before, certainly long before me, um, and had been kind of a fixture in the tour ever since. So his his death really rattled this tournament, uh, certainly in the press room, the first week. Yeah, it was just a big shock, and um, just just seeing that you know being in the middle of working in the middle of a work day and then, and seeing the news and just it's just horrif- horrifying really um, just and really d- difficult for for his family his children his wife Lucy difficult for some of the other tennis journalists um, who had to obviously he's many miles away from home and had to help to facilitate his return. Yeah, and it's just, yeah, it's just been, hor- it's been hor- horrible in some ways, and and was in in a strange way also just seeing how things quickly moved on. You know, the tournament continued, the world didn't stop. Yeah, and, but every day you'd go in and see his his empty desk there, and to me, I, I ever, since I started, you know, covering the sport initially as a blogger. And and f- sometimes face some hostility from some some areas. Mike has always been just a very kind, nice person, pleasant person. Always offered you know, if if you need any help or advice, he was there. He I remember him you know, when I was younger, taking you know just taking an interest in what, what I was doing and what I was there. He's he's from from the Wirral, um, which is up north north of London. Um, near like Liverpool, uh, Manchester, and it was near where I went to university, so we immediately would talk about that. And yeah, obviously <laughs> the past couple of weeks I've just been reminiscing on just conversations, I don't know, just the thing, yeah, things we discussed at times we spent around him, obviously, and, you know, as, as, a, as a journalist, we we go to these tournaments and we see each other every day for three weeks and end up spending quite a lot of time around each other, and it's... it's I think I think for everyone it hasn't really sunk in yet, and you know eventually it will hit, and it's just it's a very sad loss. Yeah, it was. It is. You're right. We do see these people a lot. You know, certainly from your own country, then even internationally too. We meet up at these same places around the world. Our very sort of tumbleweed lifestyles around the globe. We can often, in some permutations of of the group, stick together largely or see each other lots of places. And yeah, I would see Mike a lot more than a lot of my you know friends from DC, who I was only see intermittently at times and yeah it was definitely a huge shock it came very suddenly he was just at the tournament one day and the next day he wasn't and then found out that he had died and and it was very jarring and it left everybody in kind of a daze i think for quite yeah. a while and as you mentioned one of the stranger things about it for me was that the tournament just keeps going and that like everybody all the brits are like back at their jobs the next day because it's a day full of british players playing and it's sort of the i i put out a tweet that was sort of like please like i don't know if it it really affected anybody's work actually in the end or not but like please be like understanding that this is a very bizarre time for everybody who's on the ground here who knew mike who liked mike like mike was a very well-liked person in the press room very respected very solid reporter very nice guy he's been on ncr mr listeners might remember when his emiratu kanu book came out a couple years ago um, which is actually pretty good people if you want to check it out you can go get a copy of it now yeah i had met his, his a couple of his kids and his wife 
episode of the NCR was recorded at his house, um, in his kitchen, I think. And yeah, so it was just, it was a, a, a really, it just, it just really sort of threw me for sort of a loop. I just felt very sort of yeah. off, off the rails or not like in a dramatic way, but just sort of just like not synced up with what the normal rhythms of a tournament were going to be for, for quite a while after that. So other people have written remembrances about Mike as well. Other people I'm sure will say more in the future. I know his memorial is coming up in a couple weeks in England and, um, yeah, we definitely wanted to start with this show with a, a mention of him, at least. All right. Mr. Ostapenko has no challenges remaining. Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by NCR Spain and Sub-Standard Africa correspondent Tumani Carriol. Tumani, hello. Hello. How are you feeling day after this tournament finally ended? I'm just, it's been a very exhausting few weeks, as always, a very fulfilling in some ways as well but yeah I'm, I'm glad that we are at the end now we are at the end and let's talk about the finish let's start we're gonna start with the men i think we decided for this episode and then get to the women we'll start with the men's final that came last yannick sinner the champion of this 2024 australian open coming back from two sets down to beat daniel medvedev in the final sinner had previously beaten novak djokovic in the semifinals we talked about sinner on the preview in the draw show and it was one of the people who I flagged is the people we talked basically the framing of can this person challenge Djokovic and Sinner was the one I flagged most in the show it was aged very well of uh, the person who had the best shot of beating Djokovic and he did let's actually start with the semifinal if we can for Sinner because I think he had a pretty a pretty smooth ride until then what did you make of his win over Novak Djokovic can I reverse one round though? please so, so as you said he he, he rolled through the um through the draw, didn't drop a set up until Djokovic, and at least for me, the this it was already incredibly impressive, and he just, the way he was going through opponents. But then I think it was actually when he was down five one in the second set tiebreak to um, Rublev. Rublev, and then just flicked into gear, reeled off six points in a row. You know, wasn't even going to give him that one set. Didn't want to, you know, refused to make it close, and and yeah, that would that was just very striking. And so he dusted off Rublev in three sets. That was also the, the really late, it started quite late. It was, it had been a long day. Yeah, Djokovic, Fritz and women's, I think that was Goff, um, Kostyuk. Mm, in the day session, maybe. Yes, maybe. So, so, then... th- so things had been, had been pushed quite late and we, we people thought this was going to be a really late match by then end, I think. Was, yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Because, cause, yeah, then Sabalenka beat Krejcikova pretty quickly yeah. to start the night session. And then this match got on yeah. pretty late. And because the late finishes, as always, were a story here. We can get yep. to that now. I mean, like, the the fifth, the starting on the Sunday, which obviously made this tournament longer and more exhausting for everyone involved, and certainly had to mathematically. As we predicted, the promise that this would do anything to abate late finishes was baloney. The lie. The lie, the bold-faced lie, as Herman tells a lot of lies, or at least the director of it does, in Craig Tiley. And I don't understand the reason for this. There's no reason to keep lying about these things, but just keeps doing it. There were several late finishes. And what got me, and I tweeted about this at the time, when Djokovic beat Fritz uh, to wrap up that day session at like 8.30 p.m. or something. And it was only four sets. It could have been longer. And the second, the third and fourth sets were 6-2, 6-3. It wasn't yeah. like a super, super long match. But what got me is then they trot out Nick Kyrgios to do the encore interview and like have this little you know song and dance with with Djokovic and they're like very bizarre bromance that I don't know if anyone enjoys, and I just I don't know if they enjoy it. No, I don't. I don't get it on any level. It's just bizarre. But at the U.S. Open, this would not happen. U.S. Open when they run late, they'll have the 
ESPN, whatever person it is, sideline reporter, go out and interview, they have to be like literally one question. Be like, how do you feel? Let's wrap this up. People get keep moving. Here there was this obliviousness to it that really got me. Like why and maybe it was only five, six minutes. It wasn't super long what they were doing, but still when you have ten thousand people waiting outside the arena to do this extracurricular thing, I just thought it was again really out of touch. Yeah. And um, we'll we'll get to critiques of the really long post match interviews mm-hmm. on another subject later. Um Sverev. But going back going back to Sinner, um yeah, that that was a match that I really just already everyone was in paying attention, but that was very striking. And so he went into the Djokovic match in the semi final, full of confidence, you know, ready to step up and, and he did. um he was sharp and just you know striking the ball beautifully from the, the first point and just took control on the other side. Two things that were happening two things were happening at once while he played incredibly well. Djokovic was horrendous really. Yeah, he, especially the first two sets. Yeah. yeah. It's a horrific level errors piling up, couldn't just couldn't hang with him and, and but yeah, it, I thought it, it was still, you know, after the first two sets, as as is always the case in, in a, a Djokovic match, it became tight, ended up in a, a tie break, match went up, um Sinner got tight, missed the forehand in, into the net. And then Djokovic did what he always does and somehow dragged it into a full set. And and I was just really impressed with the way Sinner immediately shook it off, reset and came back out in the fourth set and got a break early on and just took it home. That was really just... That, I think that was still the... Clearly, he, he had the game to win a slam and, and he'd shown so much over the past year, particularly the end of last year, that he was r- ready. But I think the, the big question was whether he could do it in, you know, facing someone like Djokovic, well, facing, there's only only one Djokovic, facing Djokovic in a big, big match deep in the tournament, best of five sets, all of the pressure, if he could close it out, and, and he did it so impressively. So, that, that I mean, even leading up to the final, it was just so impressive. So, yeah. No, absolutely. Like, Sinner, I think Sinner, to me, felt like, and this maybe was more clear in the Rublev match, that he sort of came into this tournament believing he had a shot to win it. And because obviously his results in the last year were so strong, winning that really loaded Beijing tournament, I think people should talk about as a good jumping off point for his ascendance, winning Vienna then as well, playing really well at the tour finals, beating Djokovic in, in group. He's been so many top he, 10 players. He, he's he's playing like 12 and 1 against the top 10 in the last like four months or something crazy. And they only lost it to Djokovic in the final of Turin after he uh, didn't tank, as we discussed, uh, the, the round of match. He kept Djokovic in. He lost to Djokovic. But that aged well. People want to say the next time you beat Djokovic, you want to you know, yeah. feel like you're running from him. He beat him at, at a Grand Slam, so that aged very well. And he beat him at Davis Cup as well, also. Another very tight match in, in Spain. So Sinner, yeah, was was the guy and, and absolutely owns this tournament in a lot of ways. And you look back at his run through it. I mean, he'd been kind of under the radar a bit. Hadn't been getting a lot of big court assignments because he was on the same part of the draw as Djokovic and Dimonar, who was the Aussie number one, was getting a lot of attention in this tournament. But Sinner beats number five, number one, and number three. You know, and he's as a top five player yeah. to get three top five wins at a slam is very rare. Uh, so he did that, and yeah, he he backs it up in the yeah. And just because just to stay with the Djokovic match, I do think that is the biggest story of the tournament. The Djokovic didn't win it, honestly, because of how much he's won this tournament in the past. That to me. It was interesting, Djokovic in press, he got asked sort of a question, this last question, I think, in English part of his press, was something like, is this, like, the end of an era? Like, he got asked this sort of question of, like, changing of the guard, you know, whatever. And I didn't expect his answer. His answer was kind of like, eh, maybe. Like, we'll, we'll see. see. Maybe. I mean, who's, who can say? Maybe I'm toast. Maybe I'm done. Maybe I'm washed. Maybe it's over. Like, <laughs> I was, I was, not, it was not, like, defiant. It was more like, 
time will tell basically was his answer like he he said you know obviously he played bad and i don't think to cover him very much in this tournament but someone else in this part of the draw andy murray also shows up and plays an awful match and loses very quickly like when you get older in the sport we've seen this from all sorts of great champions over the years you're more likely to go out and just have a bad day like an inexplicable no-show kind of day murray certainly had that in his first match against echeverry losing very meekly 6-4, 6-2, 6-2. Djokovic had that largely against Sinner <laughs> in, those first, uh, in those first two sets, losing 6-1, 6-2. Like, that's just not any Djokovic caliber of tennis. And, and, yeah, he got it back. He obviously had some of that sort of, you know, invincibility, unkillability that he has, you know, and his matches are never, at best of five, never feel at all in danger until he's actually lost two sets. He's that good and that resilient and that tough to beat and tough to close out, but... Yeah, and then in the in the fourth set, even he was at forty love and, and dropped serve uh, there to give center that break, or to allow center that break back. So where does where does Djokovic go from here? I've always said, you know, you never know when suddenly someone's spigot will run dry in terms of this, the greats and the slams. Like who would have thought that? Um, let's say let's just name two. Like Serena dropped, winning the twenty seventeen Australian Open without yeah. winning a set, without dropping a set. That was her last slam, the last one that she won. Federer. Defending his title here in 2018, that was the last one he won. Nadal, assuming he doesn't win more, it was him crushing Casper Ruud, bageling him in the third set of the French Open final. Um, you know, you could name more. But, like, you don't know when it will be someone's... You're obviously on top until you're not. Yeah. I, I do agree. You, you never know. And I think, in, in his case, probably the reason why he wasn't so defiant is that he was still processing it and wasn't... He's not used to just going out there and playing a crap match and yeah. not being able to do anything about it. He plays bad matches, sure, but he, so often in his career, he, he, he finds, wins them. He, he, yeah, he, he plays some bad way. matches in this tournament. I mean, yeah. look, like in Djokovic, there was you know talk of like, is he ill? Does he have COVID? Was a frequent whisper around the tournament that he went you know long four sets in the first round. Dino Prismich, yeah, four sets he really could have lost to, or at least, at least been lost a sec, uh, down two sets to one against Alexei Popperin. Popperin was really had chances in that third set tri- to, tri- to go up and should have should have yeah. taken it really. Uh, then, then he got a little easier stretch against Echeverry, Manorino, and Fritz. Fritz played pretty well, but that never felt really imperiled to me, that Fritz match for Djokovic. And then, yeah, and then his, yeah. his sort of, he can't pull a rabbit out of his hat in the semifinals at all. No. But I do, I do think that after such an overwhelmingly dominant year, winning three slams and the tour finals, that I don't, I think he'll bounce back. I think he, you know, he, he there's clearly more in him to, to reestablish you know, the dominance at, at some at some time this year. And he's yeah, still number one. He's still number by one. By a decent margin. Yeah. He is going to be able to play in New Orleans and Miami for the first time in years because of the finally uh, lapsed vaccine restrictions, which were still in place this time uh, last year. Honestly, it probably benefits him just to... You think he should skip? I think I don't think he's very motivated to play Indian Wells and Miami at this point in his career. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I could see him going either way. It'd be a long time. You think he should wait all the way till? But, but I guess to play? That, that is That's that, too that, long that is the issue. Yeah. Maybe play like Miami. Maybe or, just or Indian Wells. Yeah, just one of them. That's yeah. Rafa used to just play Miami, uh, yeah. Indian Wells recently, and then you yeah. play Acapulco Indian Wells and skip Miami. Yeah, was kind of his play. I don't know. Djokovic is IMG, right? So maybe he would. Play Miami. I don't know. It could go a few different ways. Anyway, we'll see how we'll see what Djokovic is here looks like. But yeah, it was just sort of this like the the way he talked about it made me. And granted, he can go dark after losses too. Like we remember him after he lost to Chekinado at the <laughs> French Open uh, in Room Two. 
yeah, he can go dark. Uh, so maybe don't take some of it with a grain of salt. But I was I was struck by his apocalyptic yeah. about it. I'd say he, he wasn't like dark, the upset. He I think he was still just very like processing it and mm-hmm. wasn't sure what the hell happened on the court. That and he day. hadn't lost here in six years. Yeah, and on a tennis court, he lost a, a deportation appeal, but he hadn't lost on a tennis court. So Yannick Sinner wins the semifinal, gets into the final, plays Daniil Medvedev, who won uh, another dramatic semifinal, uh, coming back from two sets down to beat Zverev in the in the second semifinal. And then Medvedev comes out in this final, plays incredibly well, incredible well in the first uh, hour of this match, gets up 6-3, 5-1, killing it, really ripping the ball, just you know blasting yep. off both wings, dominating, hitting tons of winners. Sinner is not often a spectator, but Sinner had to be playing defense on this match because Medvedev was just on that much of a front foot the entire time. Uh, he stalls a bit, whether that's fatigue, physical, or just not being able to redline for that long. Who knows? Sinner gets a break in the second set, which I do think is meaningful. Yep. He still lost that set 6-3. It definitely stopped the bleeding to get that first break back. And then, you know, this other sets were competitive. It, went four, it was 4-all in the, in the third before Sinner finally got a break uh, for 5-4, and then he did the same thing Again, in the in the uh, he, set. he broke out five four both times. Yeah, exactly. So I'm saying yeah. he broke he broke in the last game of the set both times. Yeah. Um, so it was really going down the wire, and then he broke midway through the fifth. Medvedev was setting these ridiculous records as this match went on. He was the first player ever to spend more than 24 hours on court. A Cum- whole day, cumulated oh, yeah. a whole day on court. Uh, he also broke the record for most sets played in a Grand Slam at 31 sets. Uh, which is remarkable. Divide that over seven matches. It's averaging more than it's like averaging four and a half sets a match. Like it's it's huge. So he went five sets against Sinner, five against Hercatch, five against oh, sorry five against Sinner in the final, five against Zverev in the semis, five against Hercatch in the quarterfinal, and then he had gone four against Nuno Borias in the fourth round, uh, three against Felix Ojeda-Seam in the third round. So that was his easy match. And then he'd gone five sets, coming back from two sets down against Emil Rusevori in the second round. And finished at 3.40 a.m. Yeah, that was, the late, that was the late finish of this tournament. And then he was in a fourth set uh, that got aborted pretty quickly against the uh, Frenchman, the qualifier, Terence Atman, who he said he was cramping against. Or he, Atman had quit at one love in the fourth. Uh, so maybe that set shouldn't count fully, but whatever. Medvedev said he was about to start cramping, too. It was, that was one of the warmer days here in the, in the open week. So they physically, in this fifth set against Sinner in the men's final, I was watching this is a match in person out there the whole time. It's a physical feat to be out there watching an entire five-set match in person as well. We are also, you know, we also deserve our, our praise and our trophies. Sinner was in control, but it was still on serve, and there was this changeover at the 3-2 changeover where Medvedev was just really slow to get up from his chair. Like... Uh, Orly Tort, who was the chair empire, called time, and neither guy was moving. She was sort of looking at them, and then Sinner got up, and then Medvedev took a lot longer to get up, and she didn't give him a penalty. She'd already given a penalty for for going for a bathroom break again before the fifth set. And he'd already taken one, I think, after the well, sorry, before the fifth set. And he'd already taken one before the fourth, I think. Anyhow, he was slow, and then he got broken in that game, and Sinner takes the the match six three in the fifth. Um, as this match was unfolding, and we'll get to Sinner in a bit, but let's stick with Medvedev. As this match was unfolding. The the people felt so bad for Medvedev very quickly. These people remember what happened this tournament two years ago. He was up two sets to love and had a triple break point at in the two three game uh, to go up a break against Rafael Nadal in the twenty twenty two Australian Open final. He lost that game. He lost that that set that match. He loses that tournament and then again 
he loses from two sets up in a Grand Slam final. He becomes the first man in history to lose two times in a Grand Slam final from up two sets to love. He, everyone was feeling awful for him. For his part, he had a pretty light tone about things in press. He did a long presser, very much longer than Sinner's actually, and was pretty upbeat, all things considered, on, on court and, and didn't feel as bad about it. And maybe he just knows he lost to a, an ultimately better player who played really, really well in the second half of this match. And maybe that's part of it. And he'd be, he lost to a bunch already. What, what did you make of, of Medvedev's performance tournament and his reaction to his loss when everyone was like, oh my God, this is going to be the most gutting thing ever. And then he was kind of like, hey guys. <laughs> I mean, I think the whole tournament was just one of the most insane runs we, we've seen really, just in terms of, as, as you said, the, the, the five set matches, the, the, even the more straightforward matches were played in heat or just complicated in some way. Um, two recoveries from two sets down. In you know the first one, again ended again at three forty. The second one against Zverev, and with all the kind of subtext, you know there obviously before as we'll, we, we'll get to that. We'll get to that, but yeah, and so just it, it was an insane one. I, I, I'd also that before the tournament, Medvedev had talked about when asked about Zverev. The Netflix stuff that we'll get to, uh-huh. uh, Medvedev had said that he'd actually, he tried to deflect. I'm, I'm sure that wasn't, he had other thoughts that he didn't want to share, but he, he said that just by coincidence, he'd been thinking in the off-season that he wanted to change his attitude and, and act differently. And I thought that, that was actually a very successful tournament in that sense. Yeah. He had went through so many struggles, but kept his head the whole time and, and was really just focused on just trying to survive, just trying to do as well as he could. He constantly, um, you know, after the match, after the comebacks, he'd, he'd say, like in, in the interviews, he'd say, like, I was just trying to, you know, make be proud of my fight. And if I leave, if I lose, I lose. But, you know, I'll, I'll keep on fighting. And so I think thought that wasn't, in, in terms of his evolution as, uh, uh, you know, and maturate, maturation, that was, it was an immense tournament. And I, I think in the final, it just, he just hit a wall, really. As you said, he, he, and and as he, so after afterwards he, he said that he felt he had to play so aggressively and and attack as in a way that he doesn't normally because he didn't have the physicality left in him to play his his more well his more physical game his more defensive style of play yeah. to, to you know to force long rallies and to grind Sinner out and so it was amazing for two sets but then I think he hit a wall and I think part part of the reason why it was just such a grim watch is because you could see it coming a mile off as, as soon as the momentum shifted it just didn't it, was, it felt like a, a Djokovic type you know one of his comebacks on two sets where he just where he just flips and then you just see that the momentum's gone yeah once and, even once like Medvedev didn't get up an early break in the in the third because he wasn't even down early it's just like he wasn't up a break yeah. it was on serve and even that was like this is too close this is not because yeah. he because again it's just it's tough as Mary Carillo says I quote this a lot in my book Naomi Osaka her journey to finding her power and her voice available now in stores no longer have to pre-order, or or lots of other places. You know, it's what what she's her line is that the toughest thing in tennis is to come back from ahead, right? To be ahead, and then lose that momentum, and have the other person have all the momentum, and to try to re re reverse the momentum back towards yourself can be very tough. And even in these long format best of five matches, we see that a lot of times. You know, and obviously Medvedev did it himself twice in this tournament from the other side from two sets down to come back. And I appreciate what he said, you know, um, and again, I don't know if he's just telling himself this, and it is true, obviously, technically. It's like, better to, you know, 
losing the final than the the quarterfinal or semifinal or whatever. At least, at least I got here, you know, which is true. And he could have it's lost true. earlier. And I, I know we'll get to this. I know this Vera match was very satisfying for him on many levels to win that one. But yeah, it was it's tough and it's it's wild that this keeps happening in men's tennis right now in these finals. I this stat blows my mind. I knew I known about it before, but it just got added to this sort of next gen group of the players who were eligible. I'm defining this as players who were eligible for next gen, the, the ATP event for young players, uh, when it first started in 2017, and maybe even a couple of years after that, the first sort of cohort of them, players like Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Rude is in this group. Uh, Zverev is in this group. Uh, Rublev is in this group. The, among them, they've won Grand Slam title once. It's just Medvedev 2021 U.S. Open. They have blown two sets to love leads in Grand Slam finals four times. <laughs> this should be this ultra-rare occurrence. And these guys are doing it all the time. Like, what is going on here? That's that's. Do you have an answer for that? Like, why this keeps happening so often no. to, these, to this generation? And the funny thing is, obviously, Medvedev is the, the anom- anomaly, the one player who broke through. Because none, and, of, the, and none of the big three, or Murray, ever blew a two-set lead in a slam no. final. Ever. No. And these guys who barely, who are kind of newer in this, in less data, do it all the time. Yeah. I, I do think if you look at, again, if you look at, oh, I, I mean, <laughs> I don't think there's any, even a common ground because... No. Well, obviously, with Tsitsipas and, and Medvedev, they're playing against Nadal and Djokovic, and you, you know when you're playing against legends like that, that there's you know, they, they start to come back and things can move really quickly. Yeah. But then you have Zverev team, <laughs> ridiculous. One of the worst matches, ridiculous. Grand Slam final history, certainly. Uh, and yeah. this and this match as well. This, I mean, this. I do think that again, Medvedev's physical conditioning just played a massive part in it, and. He just couldn't hang, as, as, and also Sinner knew that. Sinner knew and, he was going to hit a And wall. His, his coaches were telling that, too. Like exactly. He's tired, he's tight, he's, he's whatever. And also, I think he got a question impressed Medvedev, which I thought was a smart question. Like, do you think you actually lost this final in some earlier round when you were spending, when you drop a set, they didn't say this explicitly, when you drop a set to Nuno Borges, you know, like, is that going to cost you down the road in terms of preserving yourself? And he did have some, he beat Felix very efficiently in the third round, but he did go four against Borges, he did go five against Hercatch, it's been a tough matchup for him actually in the past. So that wasn't even that didn't even feel bad at the time. That was a good performance for him to beat her catch. She was playing pretty well here yeah. in five sets in that quarterfinal. Yeah, um, but it's just yeah. It, it, I think it, I do think he may he was fine in the moment. He, he he handled it really well. I thought he was really thoughtful as always and candid and sincere. He's a very sincere person. Um, but he's I, so good in press yeah, too. Exactly. But I think that eventually he's probably gonna. When, once he gets off the flight, long flight, or home, on the flight even, yeah, on the flight, he said it's, he hates it and his body hates it. He, but he's going to go home, and at some point, he's going to think back and just be like, uh, uh, yeah. So, but yeah, it, it's it's grim. And he also mentioned, as as, as we discussed as well, that lot, two years ago, when after the Nadal loss, and of, of course, it was. His his reaction there was completely different, very dramatic. Oh, so the kid, dramatic! The kid, is, the kid inside me stopped dreaming. Yeah. But but after that, then he had one of his worst seasons since he became a. Top he player. said that in press yesterday. Yeah, he, 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 he like after he drew that connection himself. Which I don't know if he'd really done previously, but he said after this loss in Nadal. And you know, I think this. I used to switch to Sinner. I think Sinner played a lot better in this final than Nadal played in the twenty twenty two final. I think Sinner's level was really high. I think the level that, that some of these rallies they were having in the once Sinner kind of clicked on. Some of these long power for power rallies that they were having, and the ball zipping so low over the net from both of them and going side to side, I thought the level was exceptionally high. I think Sinner 
his stats. I think power rankings, he's been playing the best tennis of anybody in the last four months on men's tennis pretty cleanly. We, yeah. look, at, we look at his, his record of 12-1 and one against the top 10. Obviously, the rankings will speak for themselves. Um, we'll see how many... I don't know how many points he has to defend in February. I think not many. Or maybe he made a Rotterdam final. I'd have to look. But... Lost, lost yeah, lost to Medvedev in that final, exactly. Um, then he lost to Miami final with Medvedev as well uh, early last year. So some points to defend, but he has space and he certainly has momentum. Um, and he's good at, in kind of every condition. He can win outdoor, indoor, hard, grass, clay. He can do it all. So we, see, we think Sinner. So Sinner could be closing in on number one soon. We'll see. Um, it's pretty tight, the top four. It's actually funny. The top four, look at the rankings. The top four are all within 2,000 points of each other. And then there's a huge gap between yeah. number four, Sinner, like and number five, Rublev. Yeah. It's like 3,200 points. And actually, Rublev at number five is closer in number of points to number 20 in the rankings than he is to number four. So it's just big, this big gap of this real sort of, quote-unquote, big four now. It meant tennis of Medvedev. This is not an order of Medvedev, Sinner, uh, Alcaraz, his name we've barely said on this show so far, and uh, Djokovic, who's still number one. So Sinner, let's talk about Yannick Sinner winning this tournament. Yannick Sinner, we very famously saw early in 2019, Tamani and I are part of the mythology of this. I saw him, I don't know if you saw him in Rome. Did you see him in Rome? Uh, uh, when I he played, Carl, Carl okay, so he played. Oh, no, yeah, I think maybe. Yeah. I, I watched him first in Rome, and he was a wild card ranked in the 260s, I think. He was playing Steve Johnson in the first round. He was wearing head clothing. He was wearing this, like, red hat and this, like, yellow shirt. It looked like he was a McDonald's cashier. <laughs> and uh, he went out and, and came back to beat Steve Johnson with some flashy shot making in the crowd who'd never heard of him, probably largely getting behind him. Um, and then he lost in the second round to Sitsipas, actually. And then that result oh, yeah. got his ranking high enough to enter Wimbledon qualifying. He plays Wimbledon qualifying. He loses the best match of the 2010s of the decade uh, to Alex Bolt, the Australian. Uh, everyone who's there agrees it was the best match of the decade. So I'm sorry people ask if there's video. There's not. I don't think there's video of this court. It's just sort of preserved in our oral tradition, if nothing else, as, as many great legends are. So Sinner was a, a, a player we identified very well who was you know, this combination of like crazy power and young and pasty ginger, and just this fascinating, you know, an Italian named Sinner. Like, it was all just an interesting package, and he caught our eyes for various reasons, but the tennis was always there, and the, the level of play and, and shot making was always there. And then, yeah, it held up. I mean, he qualified for the U.S. Open main draw later that year. He played Vavrinka in the first round. He got into, he, he played next gen in northern Italy, his home, his home turf, and won that very convincingly. Uh, and then, yeah, then he started playing more events, winning ATP titles. He actually, after he won a challenger, he mentioned the challenger, but I thought was interesting in his post-match yesterday. Um, he won the Lexington Challenger, I think it was his first challenger, with Mike Cation on the call, rematch against Alex Bull in that final. There's a lot of hype. It wasn't as good a match, but it was okay. Uh, and anyway, uh, it'd be fun just to find some footage of, of that match. There's definitely footage of that match out there somewhere. Yeah, Sinner uh, had been kind of steadily rising, not unlike, let's say, not totally unlike a Coco Golf where it had been like incremental steps. Um, golf was obviously hyped sometimes she was like 11 years old or something really, really early. But on the radar, things had slowed down at times. You could say there'd be rebounds for frustration. People were saying things like, oh, we can't play best of five or whatever, or knocking him. You think you said that in the draw show. I didn't say he'd come. <laughs> I said, we'll see. I said, we'll it, see. I think it was still like the final question, I guess, if he was ready. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to shit on you too much there. Uh, but no, so uh, anyway, but Sinner, you know, incremental steps made his first uh, quarterfinal in, I guess, 2021, or 2020, he made quarterfinals at the French Open, uh, losing to Djokovic, sorry, losing to Nadal after beating Zverev in the fourth round. 
Then he makes a, a, quarter, a semifinal at Wimbledon last year. You know, like I said, incremental steps. Makes the went to Masters in Toronto last year. You know, step by step, and then he gets the slam and just seemed ready for it, um, winning his winning his first time in a final. Um, and yeah, it's interesting. Uh, his coaches said he was very motivated by Carlos Alcaraz's success. They have this emerging rivalry, the two of them, um, and they played some great matches against each other. Best match of the twenty twenty so far. The consensus is the the quarterfinal they played against each other at the U.S. Open in twenty twenty two. Yeah, what do you make of of Yannick Sinner, where he is, and where he's going? I, I think yeah, I, I agree with your you saying that it, it's been incremental and. It's actually been really just interesting and, and instructive to see how he has gradually just improved and, and grown and, and made changes. And we, we saw him, for example, two years ago at the beginning of the year, he, I think February 2022, he just made it a top 10, decided to, to step away from Ricardo Piatti, yeah. dissolved his entire team because his whole team was from the academy and just and decided to basically build his team himself. And clearly, it's gone really well with with Simone Vagnozzi and um, Darren Cahill. It's been a great partnership, and we've seen him change his serve, um, change his serve technique, and his serve has improved dramatically. We've seen him become a more well-rounded athlete. He was he always had the ball striking, as we said, but he's just become like such such a more well-rounded player. Some of the defense he was playing against Medvedev exactly. yesterday was incredible. Like yeah. he was he was running side to side, winning points. A la Wozniacki. Like, honestly, it was, it was pure, like, I'm just going to run. Yeah. And that's all, it was he only could do. all he could do at certain points is how well Medvedev was hitting the ball and, and dictating. And, and he could do that. He wasn't winning tons of points that way, but he had that in him, and that was not something he had previously. Yeah. And then at the end of last year, of course, we saw how just things were moving, started to move quickly and build momentum and how well he played at the end. And, and as I said, I, I, I still thought the, the question mark was what he'd do in best of five and all of, under all of that pressure. We saw at Wimbledon when he played Djokovic and he couldn't handle it. He still wasn't ready six months ago. Um, I, I, the, the, groan, the crowd groans from him, you know, like misfiring in the tiebreak, the finals at tiebreaker, etched in my mind. Mm. But now he was ready and it, it was so impressive. And yeah, he's, he's put, it's just, I, I think it's also fun, but, but both with him and Alcaraz to see how freely they've taken these slams and just the freedom they've played with. They're not, you know, they're not nervous wrecks as we've seen in the past. It doesn't feel fraught with them at all. Yeah. Like even honestly compared to this generation we just talked about that is I now mean, that's what has a one in four yeah. record went up two sets to love in, yeah. in slam finals. What is that? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they have, honestly, it's, it's unbelievable. They, yeah, they are, they are just as free. There's this joy about them. People really like them. They have this natural charisma. Alcaraz is a different kind of, it's more of a clear showman, but Sinner, people really like Sinner. People, I mean, obviously, I know we've been, you know, fond of Sinner for a long time since seeing him, but his, you know, I think as, I think Courtney posted some Gucci shoot photo of him and said something like, like, I forget what the exact quote was, but something along the lines of like, you're, you're swag too strange or something, or like something, something I forget what it was, but it posted something like he's, he's an unusual star figure in terms of being this, again, still pasty ginger, dressed up in Gucci. With Parmesan sponsorships and coffee sponsorships and random carrots, random carrots. Sorry. People don't have his carrots for him exactly. He gets given carrots uh, on talk shows and, and being paid to come to tournaments. But anyway, yeah, the carrot boy, the Carota boys, yeah, were credit a credential here. They yeah. were like in media dining. I was like, what is going they, they had a press conference and they left before the final. Yeah, they left after the first week. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Anyway, so that that part's all a little odd, but but it, it's, 
but some of the carrot love is organically grown. Some of these are organically grown carrots, mm-hmm. and and he has that going for him. And, and and Italy loves him. He's obviously the crowd support he got at the in Turin was enormous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and yeah, the reaction to his win in Italy was very clear on social media and on traditional media. There is is huge. So yeah. he's the real deal. And also the other thing I'll say is with Djokovic having this uh, down tournament or down match at least against center, there's suddenly room. Like if Djokovic is is stumbling or wavering a bit, who who's going who's going to check him? Who's going to check Anik Center? Who? Nobody. I mean, like it, Alcaraz is not firing at his at his peak right now. Uh, you're you think he might? Or he's, he's not I mean, consistently there. He's, he's not consistently there now. I think he's Medvedev is up and down. Or Medvedev, Medvedev just just lost to him for, for the fourth time in a row. I don't think it's Zverev. So yeah. I think, I, I, he, I think yeah. he has space. He does have space. I think, yeah, he has space, and I'm 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 interested to see that. I mean, as everyone is that the the Alcaraz and Sinner um, rivalry grow. I, I'm, I'm I am very amused by how invested Alcaraz himself is in in promoting it and and making sure we know about it. Just in terms of the social media and the amount of time you know he, he, the amount of times. In in the past few years, he'd be like Yannick, you know, the best player of all time, and Yannick, Yannick would that someone would ask Sinner about it, and Sinner would be like, well, I haven't won a slam yet. So. People people stand. But something yeah. about something about Sinner, people I think, stand. I think it, I think it's that he's very he's very unfussy. There's no there's no drama. He's yeah. he's laid back. He's calm. He's quiet. It's a quiet quiet swag yeah. and a quiet confidence. Yeah, because he knows he knows he's good. He yeah, knows, he knows he's good. and he's always had that. Like ever since even you know when he first, when I first met him, and his English has gotten better too. That's one thing I noticed. Yeah. Having not talked to him a ton in 2023, I was off tour and working on the book. His English here, I was struck by how much more fluent it is. I think having Cahill in his camp and speaking English a lot more probably yeah. is a big part of that. Um, but with Sinner, yeah, he has this sort of appeal. I wanted to ask you about something about the what you just said, kind of the social media stuff. There was conversation about this last night. This is more slightly tangent. What do you make of the trend or the expectation of players congratulating uh, other players? either on their same tour or other tour, after wins. I've talked to a couple, I talked to at least one PR person about it, as a PR manager of a player, who said it becomes strange because, like, oftentimes if you're actually friends with the person, you'll just, like, text them. But then there's also suddenly this, this expectation to be doing this performative public statement as well. I don't know, I think it's, the people were noticing, for example, a lot of the women were congratulating Sinner on his win last night, who hadn't congratulated Sabalenka on her second win um, uh, the day before. So is that, what do you make of, of this sort of, is, is people, are people reading too much into it? Is it no big deal? Is it a strange thing to expect? What do you think? I, I do think clearly when, when players are friends, you, you take someone, that's the regular human thing to do. But I, I do think just the general way that, I, I understand why, the, the general way that some female players in, just will talk about uh, male players or, Tweet or tweet in general, not necessarily congratulations, mm-hmm. but you know they'll be like, "I'm watching this match." Da, da, da. A lot of the a lot of the female players are fans of men's yes. tennis, and they watch and, it, and, and they're more comfortable watching it yeah. sometimes than women's tennis yeah. for a different reason. And I don't, I don't, I don't think that's an issue, but it, it is quite, it is quite cringe when you think that it, it isn't that isn't reciprocated at all. Mm-hmm. When when you get Carlos Alcaraz on court and and Jim Corey asks him. You know, let's talk about Alcaraz. Actually, we haven't talked about Alcaraz yet. Alcaraz uh, loses in the quarterfinals as the two seed. He had been kind of pretty smoothly through the tournament up until that point. He had had uh, win in the first round over Gasquet, then Sonigo, 
then Jerry Shang, who, who retired early in the third, and then he beat Kekmanovic in the fourth round before losing in a quarter to Zverev. Let's just stick to uh, Alcaraz now. Finish your thought on, on that yeah. moment with Alcaraz failing the name a woman challenge. Yeah. Um, so so he, he was asked who he watches by, uh, by Jim Corey, and he, he just said obvious you know, top top players, male players. And then Corey, I think he was feeling a bit cheeky, and he was like, so how about the women? And you saw Alcaraz just stutter a bit. He was, he was, I thought he was clearly nervous as well. And then the crowd started laughing. And then he was just, he said, yeah, when I, when I turn on the TV, and then the crowd were laughing again. And he's like, I watch anything, men's and women's. And he didn't actually name a woman in the end. Which is, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily something that needs to be, he, no, you don't need to beat, you know, beat him about it. And, but it, it's kind of, it's, it's definitely indicative of, I think a disconnect. The disconnect between the the way the the women I, see male players and the way a lot of male players. I've heard players. Work. I think Nadal even, because I, I, I remember Nadal being asked similar questions once, and his answer would be, uh, he'd watch the Spanish. Yeah, women. that was his answer. That was his safe answer. It was vague but safe, and not sort of implying anything or whatever. I don't know. The other thing I'll say about this is there was this this fake quote that came out on social media. I think by someone named Vic. He said, I don't follow them, but I think it was Vic Evictis, who, who puts up this photo of Alcaraz in press and a quote about how he was too nervous to say how much he loves watching Radu Kanu, actually. And that was his real, you know, sort of true love in the sport. And this got traction and pick up from some real news outlets. This is a, I've said this before on this podcast and certainly on Twitter as well. This is a growing issue in the sort of the very low stakes deep fakes that are happening on on tennis Twitter, people make these quotes. I was doing a live TV interview uh, last week, and someone asked, and the interviewer asked me again on live TV, what, how cool it was that Coco Golf's dress was inspired by Serena, which was another fake quote that someone had made up. And again, this like very low stakes fake quote, and then saying like she was inspired by Serena's 2016 yellow outfit into the midriff too, and she just loves Serena. And Coco herself even said, like, I was confused because I didn't say this. Like, did I say this? I didn't yeah. say this. I like Serena, but I did not say this. And I was and I was thinking, like, oh, like I was I was like, what do I do with this? Because I know this is complete nonsense, this origin. And, and But these people who are making these fake things and polluting the, the Internet with these lies are, are often very successful at it and are, are disseminating fake news. You can say it's like no stakes, but there are times when they say, they attribute sort of more critical, nasty things to people saying things. Like poor Yelena Yankovic gets all sorts of crazy things coming out of her fake mouth in their mind. With the same picture every time. <laughs> same picture. And yeah, so like part of it, I understand the trolling and I get that it's fun to be a troll on the internet, but also like it's, they're too good at it. Like, and it, it fools people, and that becomes dishonesty, and it becomes libel on a certain level. But I think maybe the media outlets that are picking up random quotes from random people on Twitter should try to do their jobs a bit better and, and it's be easy a to bit say more that for sure. No, of course, of course. Yeah. But they're fooling people. Like I yeah. said, like you know, not everyone who's going to be writing about tennis is a tennis expert, or not everyone will know there's a running joke from Vic or whoever about Alcaraz having a crush on Raducanu or whatever it's, kind of fanfic they have spun here. And and that fan that kind of fanfic that, can go, it fooled Emma, right? Did Emma get fooled by it yeah, once? Yeah, yeah, I think some someone made a quote saying I can't remember what, oh. or something to do with like maybe. Who Alcaraz would want to play mixed doubles with, and he mentioned Radicanu, you know, the fake quote mentioned Radicanu and and complimented her, and then Emma tweeted 
like re- re- like retweeted it and put yours as in you know like you're playing doubles and you leave the ball for the opponent <laughs> and then she had to delete the rules and uh, I'm sure like at least I've seen at least multiple um, Twitter accounts with just like yours uh. on their banner <laughs> You but know, I, I get, I get, I but, get why it's funny to trick celebrities or media into things. I get it, and a lot of times people recognize that it's like satire. People who are their followers on their yeah. timeline, but just as the nature of Twitter, I guess specifically, that things can get almost anything can get launched into some sort of orbit. Yeah. Any tweet that you can think is innocuous or just for your friends um, can become a thing. I, so yeah. again, if I, I it, it was just like it was, just, it was just like I was, I was like being like I'm on camera, and I don't want to be like. You are wrong. Here's what happened here. Do and, your and, job. And, and like, no, I didn't want to say it. I, didn't, I felt bad for the person because he was like, I'm sure he found this in his research on the tournament talking about Coco Golf. Like, here's a Coco Golf thing I saw when I was doing my research that dressed Serena. Like, I was like, yeah, yeah, I don't know if she actually said that. I forget what my answer was somewhere out there, probably online. But it was, it was, I was like, ah, I, I did, in the I did, moment. I did like Coco's answer where she like repeatedly said, oh, they're going to see this and they're going to like it. They're, yeah. they're going to like that we're talking about this. Coco, Coco, gets she, ten, she, she's, on yeah, ten, she's a she, tennis Twitter she person for sure. She understands it. And um, speaking of, well, well, we'll get to it with the women. The, the, go the, ahead. The USTA graphic. Oh, that was fun. <laughs> But like, Coco was big mad about it. <laughs> she was so mad. It was funny how like she kept going and going for hours. <laughs> yeah, you let's talk about that now. Coco Golf, because uh, it does involve... I'll talk about Ben Shelton here in a second. Ben Shelton was maybe the worst hard done by of these people in there. Seb Corda. Corda. Shelton just got gone. Like. <laughs> well, Shelton like, was like really like overbitey or something. It, they were supposed to look like the Wild Thornberries, which was a, was a Nickelodeon cartoon about... Sort of stuff. I think they're in Africa, actually. The Thornberries. I don't know if they're in Australia or maybe they're in Australia. I don't know. But anyway, some sort of nature show. People who are like documentarians and their family, and they travel around and do stuff. And it was drawn in a specific style, but the, it was not flattering for almost any of the people involved. And Coco was big mad and just and bored online, and it just kept going. It was very funny that she was like, I DM'd them and they left me on red. It's like this is the U.S. Open champion, the number like top American tennis star. Giving her federation, it was all just like a funny social media parable of like trying to be too cute. Uh, anyway, Ben Shelton, speaking of him, uh, he made the third round of this tournament. He made the quarters last year. He could have played Djokovic in a rematch. The Djokovic was really still animated by this this uh, Shelton thing. And I did ask Djokovic in his third round pressure when he was about to play Shelton. I, Shelton had lost like literally 20 seconds before I started asking this question. I didn't know yet, um, but I got. Nicola told me mid-question, ATP moderator. But Shelton still is occupying some headspace for Djokovic, which I think is interesting. Um, anyway, Shelton lost to Adrian Manorino, who in his mid-30s made it to this uh, fourth round and was on triple bagel watch. He got his, his yep. butt kicked real hard, um, but still a nice uh, little run by him. Other miscellaneous results. Let's go through. Uh, let's talk about Pino Prismich, actually. We mentioned this very briefly. This was a really impressive debut from him, this young Croatian qualifier teenager who took a set off Djokovic uh, in the second set and was really pushing him. And this was a very physical, high-quality match. Djokovic, was, again, was not at his best, but Prismich was really good. And, uh, yeah, it was an impressive showing uh, in the first round. And seemed like everyone was kind of like, wait, what's happening here? Like, do we need to be on upset alert for this? It would have been a stunning first-round upset if Prismich had actually beaten Djokovic, obviously. Yeah. And particularly, I see, obviously, he's a Croatian player. You come through qualifying for the first time. You get Novak Djokovic. That's, that's the dream, right? Yeah. And he, yeah, he's a great athlete, um, really good forehand. He, he played well. He, he, I was impressed. Prismich also was part of the trend in this tournament of really 
increasingly vanishing short length. This is a trend in men's tennis that these men are wearing just shorter and shorter shorts becoming briefs, becoming thongs eventually probably by the French Open. It's, it's I don't know if it's Holger or Grigor or whoever, but it's a, it's a trend that I noticed. And Courtney joked, which was funny, because Prisman had his thigh wrapped really, that the shorts had cut off circulation to his leg because uh, they were extreme. Let's see, we mentioned Andy Murray losing early in this tournament as well. Taylor Fritz uh, made the quarterfinals here. Fritz had a good run. Fritz had his uh, first ever top 10 win at a slam in the quarterfinals. We predicted, we said in, in, this draw, in our draw show that Fritz should make the quarters here. He should be the sort of not at top of his game, Tsitsipas, and he did. He, he lived up to that expectation. Solid run after playing a very tough first round match against Facundo Diaz Acosta. Acosta played really well. Fritz was very complimentary of him. Then he rolls Hugo Gaston and, and beats Marashan in, in four sets, and then beats Sitsipas in four sets. So it's a good tournament for him, and he acquitted himself pretty well against Djokovic too in that quarter. It was a for someone not a good tournament for American men overall. He was the only one to make the fourth round even, but it was a good run for Taylor Harry Fritz. Yeah, and that that was a, a quality. That was a good match, the fourth round match against Sitsipas. Yeah, um, just high quality, and that's probably one easily one of the best wins of his career. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I think, but looking at Sitsipas, he came in after lo- last. His season ended last year with the back injury when he retired like three games into the ATP finals. And since then, he'd been racing against time to get fit. He And by, by the time he arrived in Melbourne, he changed his service motion. He's, he's, um, yeah, he's not, he's not doing like the pinpoint stance instead of the platform stance to try and put, well, he didn't say it, but I mean, it's evident that he's trying to protect his back. Um, so, I did, there's general question marks around Sissipas in terms of, I don't know. Well, your, 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 my face is, <laughs> you finish your thought and then I'll yeah. say my face. I think there, there are general question marks surrounding Sissipas in terms of the stagnation at last year and just his results just you know just slowed down and he wasn't performing at, as a top, top five or top eight or top, even top ten player. But I, I did think, this was a. I mean, he, he was clearly racing against time to be ready physically, and I'm not sure how. Even though he, he didn't, you know, say it, I'm not sure what how, what percentage he was at in, in terms of his back. And I'm curious to see how how that develops going forward. If he if he keeps the serve as it is, or if he's going to go back once if the back improves. And yeah, I feel like Sitsipas like could use a break. Yes. I, I feel like, I feel like he's been playing through a lot of stuff yeah. for a while. There was this whole elbow issue last year as well. I I just don't. I mean, these are diminishing returns. He nearly, if if uh, Demonar had won his fourth round, Sitsipas would have fallen out of the top ten, and that would have actually been the first time in ATP history there'd be no one-handed backhand players in the top ten. Fun fact: If Sitsipas had departed there, because he's the only one left at number ten. You have faith. What, what do you want to explain your reaction to that tidbit? Or I'm just I'm just a two-handed backhand supremacist. I'll leave no. it like that. I, they're, become, and, they're becoming and, obsolete. And I mean, there have been better one-handed backhand representatives than the top yeah. His backhand's not amazing, no. But, like, yeah, so, uh, anyway, Sitsipas, I just think he needs a break. I, I agree he's stagnating. I think he... His, there's parts of his game I think could always been better. The serve I point to for a long time. I think he should be with his build and his big, big frame and big height. He should be getting lots of free points on serve and have a dominant serve. And I don't like his service motion. Um, I think he could do better there. And yeah, I just think that he's uh, could do better. And I want better for him. I want him to live to his potential. And um, and this this tournament is not it. So I, I would like I wouldn't mind if he said you know I'm gonna skip the next three months and and rest and rehab and be ready for clay. That would be for me. That'd be very welcome news from Setsapas. I don't expect him to do that, but 
I'd be very welcome. You know, because you, with someone like Sister Pass, you're getting these, like, six-figure entry fees to get, play these, whether it's 500, whatever 500 is entered, you know, whether it's your Rotterdams or 250s even, your Rotterdams, your Acapulcos, your Dubais, I don't know the schedule this year. But you get all this money to keep playing, and it can be hard to take a break, but I really think it'd be a good investment for Sister yeah. to uh, take a break. And and he, he does play a very heavy schedule, yeah. and you're right, that's probably that's con- contributed, yeah, and it, but it's contributed a lot, probably, to the, the stagnation. Exactly, yeah. And maybe, I don't know if he needs new coaching, too. I mean, whatever it could be. Um, we talked about Sinner, um, obviously, we're just going through the draw here. Disappointing tournament, for sure, for Francis Tiafo. I'll mention him as we scroll past, losing the second round to Thomas Mashak uh, in straights. That was a bizarre uh, exit for him. It turned a pretty decent first round win over Borna Chorich. Alex Dimonar was the big talk here. He and Andre Rublev played a really uh, good uh, fourth-round match, uh, really high quality in the second and third sets especially. Um, both of them just going at it to just the athleticism of, of this of this kind of tennis was really great. Uh, and then Dimonar finally ran out of gas and got bageled in the fifth, but good effort from him. Uh, in the first round, I was watching this match from the pit the entire thing, and this was sad to watch. Um, Dimonar playing Milos Ronic, who actually took the first set over Dimonar, which is a big surprise. Dimonar was very tight in that first set and playing as his home pre- pressure, and then Ronic um, had some sort of back issue and, and very abruptly stopped the match. Um, at two love in the in the third after having taken an off court timeout before that, and um, people you know we wonder openly if that was the last we'll ever see of Milos Raonic with him kind of coming back and what was kind of bonus point of his career. Uh, that was a tough tough exit to watch. Other people in the draw. Oh, one of the other sort of well, we can get this there eventually. But this was a nerve wracking match in the first round. I'm looking at the draw here. Andre Rublev needing five sets to beat uh, Tegas Tebach Vild, uh, needing a fifth set tiebreak 10-6. That was a, a real sliding doors match, and what the door might have led to hell. Uh, Holger Runa loses early to one of the uh, surprise players of this tournament for sure, Arthur Kajo, yep. who was an alternate in the next gen, was the French reciprocal wild card. French reciprocal wild cards. I was looking at some stats. French reciprocal wild cards are some of the most helpless or hopeless uh, prospects in a draw. This. Kajo making the fourth round was the first time a French typical had ever made a fourth round at a slam in New York, men, men at least, New York or uh, or Melbourne. So, so you're saying reciprocal wild cards are useless? Yeah, I am. I'm mm-hmm. saying that very loudly. And Kajo, yes. you know, if he's playing this well, he, he just won, uh, I think he won Numea the week before, so he could have qualified. You know, yep. He didn't need this reciprocal either, but uh, he, he beats Hogaruna in, uh, in, in the second round and then beats Greek Sport very handily in the third round. So just a name I hadn't seen much of. He had... Uh, a very distinct kind of uh, swag and charisma, yeah, and he, he's got a lot of stage presence. So he's definitely one to one to watch. There's some funny interviews um, if you read French at all that uh, our colleague Quentin Moignet posted uh, from his coach and stuff on from the Keep. So that was fun. Herkacz, like I said, had a good tournament there. You know, Borges gets a really surprising win in the third round over Grigor Dimitrov. That was a big shock result for me, honestly. Dimitrov coming off his Brisbane title. Losing in four sets to Nuno Borges. Again, just one of those kind of like bad days from a top older player uh, that Borges took advantage of. Borges becomes the first Portuguese man in a long time to make it to the second week of a Grand Slam in singles. Uh, Alex Mickelson made the third round. It was one of the last Americans standing. What was really not a good turn for American men at all. He lost to Zverev in the third round after beating Lehechka, uh, who was a quarterfinalist here last year. Uh, Cam Nori beat Holger. Uh, sorry, Cam Nori. I confuse him even in print. This is bizarre. <laughs> Cam Nori beat Casparud uh, before losing to Zverev in the uh, fourth round. Good tournament for Nori. Yeah, really good. Really, uh, he he was he played very well against Zverev. Well, he, in general, he was playing just a lot more proactively, coming to the net, playing with more variety, doing things that you not normally associate with Cam Nori, and 
it's impressive to see him evolving as a player. He was really close to taking out Zverev. Yeah. Casper yeah. Ruud had previously won a, a five set, a fifth set tiebreak against Max Purcell in the round before that as well. So some epic matches from him. Tommy Powell last year's semifinalist lost in the third round to Kekmanovic uh, after having match points in the fourth uh, set. Really just gave up in the fifth and, and got bailed. Uh, it was tough to watch. And that's pretty much the whole way we're going to work through the draw here. And now we get to talk about the guy who we've avoided talking about. I think we're going to do the men and women different episodes. I'm realizing not at this point of the show. So we talk about the men for this long. Alexander Zverev. This story felt is, is not a new story on any level. The story of, of the abuse allegations against Alexander Zverev first emerged in October 2020 uh, when his ex-girlfriend Olya Sharapova posted on Instagram and then did several interviews with Russian outlets and then with CNN and then I talked to her, her racket. But it got traction here, and then obviously there's the second set of accusations uh, from his more recent ex-girlfriend and mother of his child, Brenda Patea. And so two long-term relationships that both ended with these sorts of accusations that Zarev has denied all of blanket, blanketedly and repeatedly. Zarev was issued a, a penalty order, which is sort of, people have heard about this hopefully by now, but basically penalty order is sort of what German prosecutors or courts assess when they think that a case is straightforward and doesn't need to go to trial. Zverev is challenging or appealing that penalty order, and so there will be a trial about it. And the news that we got on this, right before the tournament, was that there was a trial, or maybe right as the tournament started, was there was a trial date set for late May, for May 31st, for the first of several non-trial dates that will be scheduled in the, in the time after that. Zverev had previously, I think we talked about this on the pre-show, I'm not sure, but Zverev had previously been spotlighted in Netflix. We had we definitely talked about that and, and given this very whitewashed portrayal of him making this heroic comeback and Medvedev as villain and, and Zverev working his way back uh, from from this injury he had at the French Open and he had no mention of the allegations at all. And then uh, he was also elected by his peers to the player council. I still don't know. I should have, this is my fault for not doing more reporting on this, and, but it was just hard with the way this term was going in a lot of ways. Um, and I was busy with book stuff a lot of times too. I don't know that anyone ran against Zverev. That's still something I would like to know. Did Zverev actually beat people, or was it just that no one else ran? Was it just sort of a running unopposed thing? He said in one of his press conferences, someone asked him to run, which made me think that maybe there weren't other people running. I don't know. Anyway, this story, I'm going to pitch this to you here. This story got way more, I read, wrote this already, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. This story was way more talked about during this Australian Open than at any other Grand Slam, easily. Yeah. Why do you think? Why do you think it finally caught on here but i think it was the main point is that after speculation there's now a trial he's going to try concrete the trial yeah. Day, yeah that's yeah. a big part of it i think i think that's it and also yeah i think that's prim- primarily he's you, you say now he's on trial for for physically abusing a, a woman um and and i mean this is probably this isn't why but additionally it, the trial is going to take place it's scheduled to take place during the french open and wimbledon so <laughs> The, the next two, we, we don't know if... So, so currently he's not ma- mandated to attend it in person, but the judge can, you know, if the, the judge wants to hear from him, wants him in person, the judge can mandate him to, to attend the trial. So I think that that's primarily why, because there was a... There's now a concrete court date, and, and this is this is a fact. This is... Even before, because obviously the... With the the first allegations from Olga Sharapova, it played out through interviews, and that just from my opinion, that they are very extensive and detailed allegations. Um, yes, 
very detailed. But it, it, obviously, the, the people constantly held it against her that she, that she didn't go to to the police, which I, I mean, I don't agree with. I don't not people, people in general, people people do not not everyone has the funds or the just the will to go through court system and all of that all of that people don't understand this issue I've, I've obviously covered this you know covered oldest part of the story at least closely for a, a year or so and people don't understand a lot of basics this first of all people make have there's this whole culture of men online who find this this community and these, these speakers whether it's you know your andrew tate types in the world or whatever who have these very misogynist views that women are out to destroy men and that everything is fake and it's for, the first their first instinct when they hear domestic violence accusation is to start shouting about Amber Heard or about whatever else, whatever other thing they think is proof that all women are liars and these things don't actually happen and they're just in it for the wrong reasons. And it's very damned if you do, damned if you don't for the women in this completely unfair system where Oya get, gets blamed for, for not going to police and then Brenda gets blamed for going to through the system yeah. and said, oh, she just wants money or she wants custody or she wants whatever else. Like there's these two, they're not happy with either when you get down to it. They don't approve of either method because they just don't respect uh, women and don't think that their stories are important or valid or, don't, or aren't inclined to believe them. And they also say things about the case, about there being no evidence or no proof or whatever that just show they haven't read stuff. Because there is, in all your story, it was not, yes, court-entered evidence in terms of evidence that way, but there was lots of uh, documentation and, and supporting witnesses and things that she presented in her, in her story and, and photographs of, you know, things and such. And Zverev has denied all this and Zverev has provided little, any public... Uh, counter uh, story, which is one of the interesting things potentially in this trial that we could finally hear on some meaningful levels very side of things, which he has refused to give. He's just give these sort of glib comments about how anyone with a high IQ understands what's going on. And to my frustration, I don't go to Sarah's press conferences. It would just be a mess, but it, no one follows up with that and says, but what do you mean? Like, yeah. what does that actually mean? And so hopefully if he does that again, someone will follow up and say, pretend I have a low IQ. Tell me what, what you think this I'll means. Oh, yeah, I, I was frustrated. I was filing, but <laughs> actually, the the first press conference and that last one, I, I wasn't um, I wasn't at because I was you know I was filing, but I, I was very in, I'm very interested to to pose that question to him as well. And you, know, you can probably do it. He said it enough times. Yeah, yeah, you could sure, do yeah. it unprompted even. At yeah, this definitely. Point. Ne- ne- the next time I'm at a tournament. The other thing that was a major factor for me in in why the story got a couple of things. One of the biggest factors was that there was a reporter who was interested in this, or a pair of reporters, actually, from the uh, Sydney Morning Herald, this guy, Michael Coziol, uh, who's a, a political reporter, who's a Sydney editor for the Sydney Morning Herald, not a sports guy, he's a political reporter by trade, who saw the appointment of Zverev to the Player Council, election of Zverev to the Player Council, amid these charges, and said, this seems like the kind of thing in my political beat that would be bizarre. Like, why is this person facing a court date, getting elected to new office suddenly? That's bizarre. And so he was asking questions to not only Zverev, but other players, as well, men and women, and was making this suddenly be new, fresh quotes about this issue, new sound bites about this issue. It's very reacting to this in press multiple times and with exasperation. Um, as his colleague Carla uh, asked, asked if he was going to attend the court date, and it was the first question Zverev got after his uh, long second round match against Lucas Klein, which he nearly lost to his qualifier, Lucas Klein, in the second round. Yeah, so that was part of what animated this as well. And the other thing is also, other than this, it was not a big tournament storyline wise. It was there really was not a lot of off court controversy or you know shenanigans or sort of cause celebs whatever you want to say 
that happened uh, on the tennis side of players things uh, during this tournament yeah. uh, that that were stories and so it's very suddenly had all this and this goes with also Nadal not being here with Naomi Osaka let's say losing first round other matches not being super close a lot of times like there was a kind of a low degree of and this tournament is a tournament that you know like storylines like all tournaments do certainly and this one maybe especially with the very high appetite media market here uh, for all this sort of mainstream this tournament gets more mainstream news coverage in its country than any other slam does in terms of like being across news channels and, and non just sports news it really does take over preeminently in that way so Zverev is present and this news this court date got more traction I got asked to do more interviews and appearances and stuff about Zverev during this tournament or even like during one 24-hour cycle than I think I'd gotten like almost ever before and I had previously reported most recently on his story in August 2021 like it had been a long time but it got reanimated here and it was a, a feel bad story. It was it was something you yeah. know that certainly the men, some of the men's responses first. The men uniformly said they didn't know anything about it, which is bullshit. On certain, if they actually the ones who said that most yeah. overtly, saying like I don't know anything about this. And granted, sometimes the question to give them a little bit of of grace potentially. Sometimes questions were asked very specifically about the court dates, and it's entirely possible they don't know about the court dates and what the newest development is for there being a court date set. That's plausible, but they're all aware of the existence of these yeah. allegations against Vera. They talk about them. Certainly, players like Sitsipas, I'll, I'll name, who got who said he knew nothing. Like Sitsipas has spent enough time in the top ten with Vera over the last couple of years, uh, and in you know direct rivalry with him, that he's aware of, of these of this case on a pretty basic level. But all the men ducked, and the ATU was also warning them that questions were coming. And so I don't know if that contributed exactly to them giving um, specific. Uh, at least same answers. That's what Kasakina said, that the men's answer seems so scripted. And then Kossigol, uh started asking the women about it too. And the women who are also stakeholders in the sport also share tournaments with Zverev. Even Igish Fountek was the first player who, the woman who got asked about it. And she had just heard a court with Zverev recently and uh, it, at the United Cup in the mixed doubles. And people had seen the highlights of, of her winning various points against him with her, with her forehand, even though she lost the match. And the women were much more able to say something is not right here yeah. that it maybe this person shouldn't be promoted while they're awaiting trial maybe you know and it's like, it's like basic things and and taylor fritz too taylor fritz i asked about it from a netflix angle and he said you know i under he basically like acknowledged that he understood why people thought it was unideal that there's this whitewashing happening he said basically netflix is trying to make everybody look good and so i understand he understands why they didn't include that but he, he thinks that's complaint is fair and there's also just a lot of complaints from as there have been for a long time from fans and such who who care about this topic, who are dismayed by these allegations and the the evidence and who've read the stories and who, who have not been able to shake it off and just think about tennis and who do think it's relevant to watching this person who had a tough time watching him continue to advance to this tournament, be very, very close to making this final. He was up two sets to none in the semifinals against, against Medvedev. Um, and nearly had the final that a lot of people wouldn't have wanted to watch. Honestly, a lot yeah. of people don't watch Zverev matches, so it almost cost them. This would have been the first Grand Slam final he'd made since the allegation started. Uh, so it was a dark thing. I talked to, I, I, I heard from one person, I put this in my Slate article I wrote about it, One, at least one pair of ticket holders who successfully got their tickets refunded uh, from Ticketmaster when Zverev was scheduled for his third round match against Mickelson on labor in a night session, which was bizarre scheduling because uh, Medvedev, Ojeel, I seen was that same night and was a clearly much more high marquee match. 
they put out a Margaret Court for some reason and put Sarah Mickelson on, on labor. And they said, and they, it's in the article on Slate if you want to check it out if you're in a country where it's not uh, preemptively blocked just because of the injunction that's still in Germany against Slate around publishing uh, details of the accusations. Uh, yeah, it basically says, uh, you know, this person, I, is this court, I don't want to watch this person. Like, this ridiculous, this person's being showcased. And Ticketmaster, whoever official for them was handling this request, granted it and said, okay. Here's your refund. They thought it was a valid reason. And so it'll be interesting to see if that gains any momentum. If people keep doing that, if fans push back more meaningfully. There has, it's been all kind of in certain parts of social media, the pushback largely, largely. So that's, I thought affecting the actual finances in a very small way of the term, it was meaningful that someone got a refund for this reason. But like, there's not, you know, there's not ever like booing. There's not no. ever signs about this in the stands. And on, on, on contrary, there's cheering. There's and cheering, and and you you want to mention the interview. Yeah, and, and just the just the, just the disconnect of, of seeing him, you know, after a match, the the post match interviews, which are now five minutes long, uh, you know, They're basically so but basically a press, basically a press conference at this point. Yeah, and you you get a former player or a journal or a journalist coming out and just 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 talk, just play, you know, play, keep. Playing with him almost. It's and, a talk and, show. And, yeah. It's like it, the the one the the Courier Medvedev one was fun because Medvedev was like game for it. They were like walking around the court doing return position stuff, and it's okay. It, like when it works, it's okay. But it's also very tryhard. And the thing is, to somewhat sidebar, like you don't need to do this with Zverev. No, you don't. You, you could, could you could ha- you could have someone come out there and be like, "How's the match? Good. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Bye." Like, that's the thing. And the tournament is inter- this interesting mix of, like, how the tournament's dealing with this because Australian Open Twitter was not posting live tweets about his matches for most of the tournament. They were not posting highlights of his. They were not posting, like, results. They were posting his final scores. So not a live tweet, but basically a, a result tweet of his matches. When he's on some, this is including when he's on night session labor. Like, it's weird to me that they're not comfortable about tweeting about the person who they put on a night session on labor. Like, these parts of the machine are not talking to no. each other on some very basic level here. No, and, and and I'll say that again after after this news broke and Zverev's going to trial, we have a, a, a top tennis player who is going to trial for physically abusing, you know, allegedly physically abusing um, a former um, girlfriend. That obviously people reached out to the ATP and for comment, and once again nothing. Even though in the in the um, in the ADP rulebook, there's you know there there is space for them to act. Yes, exactly. They've chosen not to. As Zverev was going through the draw, a lot of people suggested that it was like ATP's worst nightmare for him to to make it to the final or to win the title when when all of this is happening. And and I think that judging by how the ATP has has tried to you know how, how much they've tried to avoid reckoning with this, I disagree i think that's giving them a lot of credit it see to me the action suggests that they do not give a fuck to be honest at times it almost reads as taunting the way that they sometimes put up positive posts about him yeah. in, in the midst of this stuff it reads as not just being unengaged but it almost feels like yeah like sort of rubbing people's faces if you don't have a problem with this so i think we agree that there should be a very toned down level of promotion or anything for Zarek. He should not be, I think he should not be getting night match showcases on labor. I don't think he should be getting these like breathless social media tweets, like exalting him and these interviews, whatever. We agree on that? Just yeah, yeah, that. Okay. Do you think to get to the next point, which several people have made, including John Wertheim, including Josh Levine, who's my editor at Slate in a podcast he did, 
uh, do you think Zverev should still be playing on tour with this, especially with this penalty <laughs> order coming and and essentially and and now appealing this, but having been ruled out, the, the comparison that Josh made on Hang Up and Listen uh, just months back was to doping with yes. Simona Halep. Simona Halep is is is, is off tour while she's appealing her case. Should Zverev, while he's while this is being processed, be allowed to continue playing on tour? No, I don't think so. I don't to think be so honest, either. No. And it, if he does, it's, it's going to be utterly in, insane if he's playing at the French Open at Wimbledon in the middle of a... Between court tr- dates. In the middle of it, because yeah. the court dates are during the tournament. Exactly. So he could be on on court while, while in court, <laughs> exactly the same time. Yeah. It's in, insanity. It, and it's wouldn't, just, it wouldn't happen in any other sport with, you know, it would happen in other sports, but a professional sport that's organized and, and has seen how these things have gone in, in elsewhere and, and I've you know, made regulations and rules to 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 address when these issues when they come. And so, no, I don't really think someone, particularly now, again, now that there's officially a trial and it's going to court as, as it stands. Yeah. Un- until that's settled, then how can you have a, a player competing week after week? It would be nice if tennis had a mechanism like other sports do for some sort of suspension with pay. I wouldn't, I'm not saying, yeah. if that was available, like a lot of other sports that have unions and collective bargaining have that, that would seem like a fine option. But yeah. tennis does not have that. I think they could almost make something up in this case if they wanted to pay Zverev a reflection of like what he earned over the previous, you know, 12 months earlier over that same time window or something and freeze his ranking even if you want to freeze his ranking somehow while he's on this suspension fine that people but people you know there's twitter people or i just mentioned i don't need to give them too much whatever oxygen but all this shouting of innocent until proven guilty that happens all the time that is not what that means no one is saying we're not saying at any point here he should be incarcerated without getting to uh to have his say in court that's what innocent until proven guilty means it's a courtroom specific Thing. It is not about how your employer treats no. you. It is not about how social media treats you. It's not about any of those things. And, and, and to on that point, if if either if either of us were in that situation, I I, I don't think I'd be writing articles for no. the Guardian. No. While, while while this was ongoing. No. So no. Yeah. No, definitely not. No, I mean, so all this just like it's it was. Um, It'll be interesting to see if this gets any track. Zverev will continue playing. He's still on tour. He's still healthy. He's playing well currently. He's beat Alcaraz. Um, he nearly beat Medvedev. Medvedev comes back this spectacular comeback from two sets down. Uh, the Twitter streets were rejoicing. Uh, that was a wild day on tennis Twitter uh, that day of, of, of the two semifinals. Yeah. Um, that one especially. And, and as, you, as you referenced, um, he, he was asked about whether it, it affected him, which is, I mean, that, that whole line of question. That's a terrible line. Quick cringe. But yeah, and, and his, his answer was, well, you said it pretty much word for word, but no, because I have said it b- before, anyone who has a semi-decent IQ level understands what's going on. I hope that most of you guys do. I'm fine with it. And so, I mean, it's horrible. That's like- such a horrible way to handle this situation it's not just you're right it's not that like he has he's been horrible about it throughout honestly the way he's talked about it certainly uh the it's embedded in the first late article his video at the 2020 bear sea where he said under this mask you know people are trying to wipe a smile off my face but under this mask i'm still smiling brightly you know like this the, the tone deafness of it yeah. is disconcerting on a human level and yeah, I hope people keep asking about it. I hope that the stories continue about it because it is it is real and it's embarrassing for the tour. And I just don't think the tour has any grasp 
how off-putting this is and how unnecessary it is. They are not fighting for someone who is a superstar. If Zverev had not been at this tournament, they would have sold the same number of tickets, if not more. No refunds. Had to <laughs> One more ticket. Was uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like they're, you know, it's not someone who is really affecting their bottom lines. I think anywhere outside of Germany, in very specific markets, and even that, I'm not sure how big that is. You know, it's yeah, they don't need to be doing this, and the 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 the, the goodwill they lose and burn by doing this is for me is dramatic and 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 significant. So. I wish they would do better. I don't have faith in them to do better at this point. They've given me no reason to believe in them in this. No. And uh, yeah, exactly. They they were originally pointing to this language when the first accusations came out, which is this kind of vague conduct unbecoming to the sport kind of clause. Yeah. And now we have these actual legal charges. And they're still doing nothing. And also not even like responding to emails. Like they, they find to one person finally saying, if you will not be commenting on this until it resolves, like maybe do. Maybe do yeah. say, maybe do say something, maybe, DP. Yeah. But the leadership, it's it seems like it, it's too weak and too much of a male echo chamber and boys club and all these things, and and they just don't seem to have any interest in having this man derailed because of women, and they see that as being distasteful and disloyal to their boy and to their golden boy who's been groomed for success from a very young age. And yeah, they they, they won't comment, so I, I can't. There's no, no reason to argue. With that. They, yeah, speak up if you want to. Yeah. You know, if, if, stand you dis- up, if you disagree, if you disagree, with that, then, then ATP, stand up because you are uh, really. Uh, you know, I think I think that the um, the body serve boys on their podcast use the term moral rot for ATP on this topic, and I think they're not wrong. So, so that's the men's draw, and that's the men's episode. We're going to stop the episode here. We'll restart with the women's episode for part two of the show. See you soon. See ya.